Well, we're in the book of Philemon. As you now know, uh, we finished last week. I, I barely moved into verses 8 through 10, which is really um, where Paul, in essence, gets to the main point of the letter, the thrust of where he's been going by writing all this letter. So I'm going to pick back up uh, in verse 8, and we're going to attempt to finish the letter today, which we need to finish, because as I said, Pastor Urban will be here next week. I want us to just um, get through this letter just so that he has a clean slate to preach from. So we're picking up in Philemon today in what is a very personal letter from the Apostle Paul written to this dear brother in the faith, Philemon. Now, as you recall, the necessity in the context for this letter goes back to the fact that Philemon, this dear brother as Paul refers to him, finds himself in a predicament. He finds himself in a trial. One of Philemon's slaves, namely Onesimus, has fled from him. As verse 18 seems to um, intimate that Onesimus has fled and, and likewise stolen from Philemon on his way out. And as providence would have it, as, as Onesimus has fled from Philemon, he's fled to the city of Rome, where there the apostle Paul is imprisoned, but is somehow still able to evangelize and to uh, preach the gospel and to interact with people. And in the providence of God, somehow this runaway slave Onesimus has come into contact with the Apostle Paul, and through Paul's uh, missionary endeavor, through his evangelistic endeavors, he has brought this runaway slave to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and this runaway slave has been converted. And as we discussed last week, nothing about this whole situation, nothing about this whole reason for this letter Everything that's involved with Onesimus' uh, sin and, and fleeing from his master, it's brought nothing but, but work and difficulties for everyone involved, uh, as sin is prone to do. Sin is always going to lead to difficulties. I noted how the Apostle Paul now has to uh, mediate now between this uh, brother and this runaway slave. Uh, there's a difficulty now for Onesimus as the slave. Now he has to repent and humble himself and return to his master. And now Philemon, as the master, has the, as we know, the difficult calling uh, to humble himself and to forgive his slave. Um, so the sin of Onesimus has definitely affected all of these people involved, the primary people involved in this letter, but... Onesimus' sin has not only affected these, these people. Uh, as verse 2 goes on to say, and as we noted, that Paul addresses this letter not only to Philemon, but also there in verse 2 we see that he acknowledges uh, Aphia, who most commentators believe is, is Philemon's wife. He, he, he notes Archippus there, who is most likely Philemon's son, who is, as we've seen from the book of Colossians, we found out that he is a minister. He is probably an elder a pastor in Philemon's church. And so the question then becomes, why does Paul include Philemon's family? Why does he even address the church as a whole in all of this matter? Well, I believe that it's because, as we know, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Onesimus' departure would have been common knowledge in the church. And depending on how Philemon reacts, how Philemon deals with this sin that's been committed against him through Onesimus' having fled from him. Depending on Philemon's reaction, the whole church could be stumbled. The whole church could, as a result, be stumbled. I think Paul includes Philemon's family and the rest of the church so that they will aid, so that they will help Philemon in this work of forgiving Onesimus. Depending on all the details of, of how exactly Onesimus actually left, depending on how much money 
or maybe what kind of property that he stole from Philemon, uh, from Philemon and his family. Philemon may have been really struggling to forgive him. But I just thought that we have God to thank that nothing we go through in this life do we have to go through it alone. Um, I think this is a perfect example of the fact that the brethren are there to help. The brethren are there to help us through our struggles. And Philemon himself is certainly blessed to have a brother, to have an authority even as the Apostle Paul that's willing to just bring in the reinforcements of the brethren to help him in the difficult work of forgiving. So let's pick up back in verse 8. Back in verse 8 where we left off where as we uh, got to verse 8 last week, as I just got to merely touch on it, we saw last week how Paul has already been doing so much work, so much work of ensuring that Philemon understands and knows that the Apostle Paul has nothing but love for him. The Apostle Paul has been graciously attempting to put Philemon at ease so that he might be ready to easily receive Paul's request for forgiveness. So we find ourselves in verse 8 where we finally get to Paul's actual request that he's directing to Philemon, the reason for this letter. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul again says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, I noted and made a big deal last week out of the fact that in the opening verse of this text that Paul does not introduce himself as he normally does. Normally the Apostle Paul introduces himself as Paul, the Apostle of Christ Jesus. But again here, in verse um, 9, the Apostle Paul refers to him, not instead of uh, Paul the Apostle, but as Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's motive in all of this um, confrontation, as you could see it, Paul's motive is not to put any extra burden upon Philemon than what was actually necessary. All of this is part of Paul's intentional graciousness in approaching this brother Philemon. But I just wanted to remind us that the Apostle Paul is never afraid um, to throw down the, the trump card that he has as being an apostle. Um, there was certainly a place and a time for the Apostle Paul to state his authority, to exercise his authority. And the first example, the primary example that came to my mind is how the Apostle Paul has to write and speak to the church in Corinth. Um, there's a stark difference between how the Apostle Paul um, there not only states his authority as an apostle, uh, but also spends several chapters defending his apolish, uh, apostleship and, and confirming his apostolic authority with the church in Corinth. And, and if you wonder what exactly I mean by apostolic authority, well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul actually uh, lists for us there at least one aspect of his apostolic authority that would play into um, the necessity of him stating it or why he would state his apostolic authority. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, um, the church here in Corinth, Corinth is defying some of the apostles' teaching, some of the apostles' instructions. Um, in the context, context of 1 Corinthians 14, some of the church is um, fighting against, is being uh, rebellious against Paul's teachings of how the gifts were to be exercised in this church. They're uh, fighting against some of the uh, proper roles for women in the church. And here we have the Apostle Paul having to address them in verse 37 with these words. He says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So the Apostle Paul is being very gracious with Philemon in this instance, 
But as we can see, the Apostle Paul is not afraid to throw down the gauntlet of his authority, which is simply his um, prerogative as an apostle of Christ Jesus to speak and to command with the authority of Christ Jesus himself. He's not afraid to do that if necessary, but obviously the Apostle Paul considers Philemon to be a good, humble, submissive brother who he doesn't need to speak um, in the same way as he did with the Corinthians. He, he's speaking in as gracious a, a way as possible. He's not simply asserting his authority, but the Apostle Paul is leaving open a door for Philemon to do the right thing of his own free will, you could say. Um, notice down in verse 14 quickly. Notice how Paul explains all of this in verse 14, where there he says, But without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Now, I'm sure um, some of your good and sensitive Calvinistic hairs are sticking up on the back of your necks and the red flags are going up because the NASB translates um, this word as free will. I can assure you there's nothing to fear, um, brethren, because what we have here in the three English words, own free will, is really just the, the translation of one Greek word, akousian, which simply just means voluntarily, as opposed to being forced to do something by compulsion. And so the NASB is good to use the language of free will here. Paul's not addressing um, or speaking to the reality of whether or not Um, a person who's dead in their transgressions and sins, has the freedom of will to respond to the gospel um, apart from the grace of God. That's not what's being um, discussed here at all. Um, But I believe that there is a sense in which it's perfectly legitimate and fine to speak, especially of a believer in the language of free will in the sense that Romans 6 uh, seems to teach that, that our wills have been freed that there has been a definite break with sin that before we were regenerate, before the Spirit of God saved us, that we did not have free wills. We were actually bound to sin and, and were under the sway of the, of the evil one. So in one sense, it's, it's perfectly fine to speak of, especially a believer, having a free will to do whatever he pleases, which, as we know, that whatever we decide with our wills will inevitably actually be what God has determined to take place before the foundation of the world. So Paul's whole point in all of this is that he's simply leaving the door open for Philemon to respond in all of this in love and not purely out of duty. So notice with me in verse 9 here how the Apostle Paul, instead of, of course, As I've been saying, instead of appealing to the highest form of Paul's authority, his apostolic prerogative, instead here in verse 9, he's appealing to his his humble position as as an aged and as a fellow faithful Christian brother who is in chains for their mutual Lord and Savior. Uh, Verse 9 is what says, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, um, just estimating based on all the uh, historical documentation from the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is somewhere around the age of 60 at this time, 60 years old, in prison, um, and, and he's not appealing here, as you might assume, to sentiment, um, but he's just simply appealing here in this language to this common Christian love that is between two faithful Christian brethren. And, and, and for what or for whom exactly is this appeal that the Apostle Paul is making? Who's this appeal for? Verse 10 tells us. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Paul is making his appeal for Onesimus. And finally, 
Finally, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul mentions this brother by name. And if you think about it, I'm sure as this letter and as this visit, uh, this, this, this personal visit by Onesimus as he returns home, all of this reality would have blown Philemon's mind because Philemon, probably for the very first time now, is learning that his, his at one time rebellious, disobedient, thieving, unbelieving slave has somehow come across the Apostle Paul some 1,200 miles away and has been born again through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, just as Philemon himself had also been converted many years before. And so the providence of all of this alone is truly staggering. Onesimus, whom had previously been nothing more than a bad taste in Philemon's mouth, was now the spiritual child of the Apostle Paul. And that alone is an amazing fact to think about. What's also amazing to think about is the reality that the Apostle Paul, who is now most likely older than 60 years old, the Apostle Paul, who is single, as we know, this Apostle Paul is still having children. It's interesting to think about the fact that he's producing spiritual children and he's raising them up in the faith. And that's good news to think about the fact that we're never too old to produce children, godly offspring, in this way, that work in one sense will never be done. We always will have that great privilege to, to raise up another generation in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, now in verse 11, um, notice, notice verse 11, because you're not going to, unless you um, lived in the first century, and this is where I think uh, the Lord has blessed us with biblical commentaries and scholarship because you're not going to notice this play on words here that the apostle paul is is committing here in verse 10 unless you know the greek meaning behind the word onesimus because the apostle paul is making a a play on words in, in this whole state of affairs with onesimus onesimus was a very common name that was given to slaves and that name was given to slaves because the word Onesimus means useful. It means useful. And now as you notice in verse 11, how Paul says, speaking of Onesimus, he says, who was formerly useless to you, but is now useful both to you and to me. So in other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that useful, or Onesimus, who is useful who was actually useless, has now become actually useful. Um, all the commentators point that out, and I thought that was interesting to note because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have caught all of the significance be between what Paul was communicating with Philemon if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for them pointing that out. But what's even more significant to note about the whole uh, of what Paul is teaching here is I ask the question, in what ways has Onesimus become useful to both Philemon and to Paul? Well, first, he's become useful to Philemon in, in, in the sense that Onesimus is now going to be a useful slave, a useful, a useful servant to Onesimus. And that fact tells us something, I believe, to be significant about the kind of grace that Onesimus has received from God in his salvation. I think it says something significant in what the Bible actually is speaking of when it uses the word grace. What is the kind of grace that Onesimus has received from God in his salvation? Because most evangelicals, I believe, and of course I qualify the word evangelical just to mean... Um, most who, re, who refer and most who think of biblical grace in a biblical context, I think have a much too, uh, much too narrow definition or view of the grace of God that saves sinners. And what I mean by that is that most simply think of the grace of God as the grace that justifies the sinner. And, and in their thinking and in their mind, 
Um, they're good and satisfied with that alone, and I am good and satisfied that God justifies us by his grace. But the problem is too, see, too few seem to expect or even believe that the saving grace of God does more than simply justify the sinner, but the grace of God actually sanctifies the sinner as well. And Onesimus has received this kind of grace from God. Onesimus has received the, the grace of God that Ezekiel spoke of in Ezekiel 36, when Ezekiel there describes the grace of God that changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and that causes us to be careful to observe God's commandments. That's the biblical grace of God that Onesimus has obviously received. He's received the grace of God that Paul speaks about in Titus 2, the grace of God that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is the grace that Onesimus has received, a grace that is so powerful, so enabling, that Onesimus would be able to even obey a command of God such as 1 Peter 2.18, a command of God that says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. But also to those who are unreasonable. And it's not as though Philemon would have been an unreasonable master, but even if he was, I believe that Onesimus would still, by the grace of God, be a useful and helpful slave even to an unreasonable master. And that's because Onesimus has been changed by the grace of God. He's now useful. But notice that Paul doesn't only say that Onesimus is useful to Philemon now, but by the grace of God, Onesimus has actually become useful to the Apostle Paul himself. Look in verse 12 at how the Apostle Paul describes Onesimus' new found usefulness. In verse 12, Paul says, I've sent him back to you in person. If you remember, this is, this is uh, referencing the reality that we looked at from Colossians 4 where Onesimus, along with Tychicus, are being sent back to Colossae. They're carrying with them those two letters, the letter of Colossians to the church in general. And they're also carrying this personal letter of Philemon to bring personally to Philemon. But Paul says, I sent him back to you in person. That is, I'm sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So it's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul says, I wish that I could keep him. I wish that I could keep Onesimus here. Um, but I don't believe that Paul wanted Onesimus around uh, to simply clean uh, the wounds in his hands and his feet that his chains have been causing. I don't think that Paul wanted Onesimus to stay around to empty out his wastebasket for him as if Onesimus was Paul's slave. Um, not at all. I think if you notice what Paul says in verse 13, that he wished to keep Onesimus with him, he says, so that on your behalf, so that on Philemon's behalf, that Onesimus might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So in other words, Onesimus, in Paul's mind, was, was fulfilling the very role that Philemon would fill for the Apostle Paul if he himself had been there. And that's significant to think about it, to consider, considering Philemon was a, a wealthy, prominent member of his own church back in Colossae. He, he is actually uh, holding the church in his household and so for the Apostle Paul to speak this way, the Apostle, for the Apostle Paul to say that Onesimus is fulfilling the role that Philemon would fill if he, if he was there um, is in, indeed saying that Onesimus is fulfilling significant gospel ministry. Now, of course, I don't think that cleaning Paul's wounds or taking out Paul's trash would not be considered gospel ministry because I would love to have had the privilege of 
cleaning the Apostle Paul's wounds or even taking out his trash for him. But Paul's point is that Onesimus was now thoroughly productive and helpful and useful in the gospel work that was going on and would actually be thoroughly missed by the fact that he's sending him back home. But it's interesting to note that as helpful as Onesimus was to the Apostle Paul, that Paul knew that sending Onesimus back home was the right thing to do, even though it would have been helpful for him. As helpful as Onesimus was, Paul knew that sending him back was, was the right thing to do. It would be Philemon's call instead to do with his slave as he wished. And, and the Apostle Paul, even as an apostle, dared not overstep his bounds in keeping Onesimus without Philemon's consent. I find it interesting to see how the Apostle Paul is not uh, pragmatic in this sense. The Apostle Paul was more than willing to do what was right for Onesimus, to do what was more than right for Philemon, even though it wouldn't necessarily benefit him in his ministry there in Rome. To the Apostle Paul, righteousness comes first, and then whatever ministry that God wills will then take place secondly. Um, I thought of 2 Timothy 2.21, where there the Apostle Paul describes how the Lord's servant must be, uh, must be cleansed, must be sanctified. You must do this work uh, before you're ready, before you're a vessel able to perform work for the Lord. Righteousness comes first, and then you're ready to be used in the Lord's service. Now, I've mentioned several times, I believe, at least in my head I've mentioned, the fact of the amazing providence of God that's actually uh, being seen here throughout all of this situation where here in, first, in verse 15 now, the Apostle Paul is actually himself raising the significance of God's sovereignty over all of this situation, and he's, he's bringing this up to Philemon as an attempt to answer the question or, or the why me question that Philemon may be asking himself. Why me? Why, is, why did my slave have to run away? Why did he have to steal from me? Why am I now in this situation? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in verse 15 by saying this. He says to Philemon, for perhaps he, speaking of Onesimus, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So in this text here, Paul is here calling for Philemon to recognize and to be comforted by the sovereignty of God that's overshadowing all of this situation. In other words, what Onesimus meant for evil, God meant for good. From a human perspective, Philemon might normally assume that he's been wronged, that he's been robbed of one of his workers, and whatever, you know, whatever other items Onesimus left with, Philemon is just feeling wronged. But from God's perspective, this was all a part of his intricately woven plan to not only save Onesimus' soul, but to provide for Philemon more than he even had before. Before, Philemon had an unregenerate, unhappy laborer, but now, thanks to the difficulty, thanks to the trial, he has now a spirit-filled, thankful, joyful brother in the Lord who will be more than happy to serve him as one who is working as unto the Lord. O ye of little faith, Philemon, now you have an even greater slave than you lost. Now, I haven't addressed up until this point what, what to you guys may be uh, the elephant in the room. And so I thought maybe this was just as good as any place to uh, address the reality and the place of slavery in all of this. Because I know I've been throwing that word around quite a bit and... Um, I remember raising this particular issue in Sunday school maybe a 
couple of months ago when we went through 1 Timothy, because the issue comes up there as well, but I, I can understand how you may, you may all be wondering why, why is it that the Apostle Paul is sending this slave back to his master rather than calling for Philemon to release all of his slaves and to begin fighting for abolition. Well, the first thing to think about as we think about slavery in the Bible and even in this instance in particular is that normally when we hear the word slavery, we instinctively reference in our minds the the slavery that took place in the Americas until about 150 years ago. But I think what we must be careful to do is we need to do the work of distinguishing between that kind of slavery and the different forms, the different reasons for the slavery that we see in the Bible, um, some being not only sinful or not only not being sinful, but actually even commanded by God at times. And it's this kind of work, it's precisely these kind of distinctions that the Bible makes that most antagonists against the Bible um, are not even willing to consider, but we need to. So let's distinguish. And let me just distinguish, first of all, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because the Apostle Paul distinguishes, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 actually condemns I would say quite explicitly the kind of slavery that maybe we, we most often think of. The Apostle Paul condemns the slavery that would, uh, would have been the same as what took place here in the Americas and in Britain where people were kidnapped and stolen from their lands to be sold into slavery. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 the Apostle Paul is discussing the good and proper use of the law which we know that the the law is is meant to condemn. The law is meant to expose and to humble sinners and to draw them to Christ, to show them their great need because of the fact that they are, in fact, sinners. The law is meant to condemn. And in verse 9b, in the second part of verse 9, Paul says that the law is for the lawless, the law is for the rebellious, the law is for the ungodly, for the sinners, And then in verse 10, in our NASBs, it says that the law is for kidnappers. That the law is for kidnappers. And what we need to understand is that the kidnapping that the Apostle Paul is condemning in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, is kidnapping for the particular purpose of enslavement. Of enslavement. And the ESV actually does that helpful work of translation and its translations of the word kidnapper and that the NASB, I mean the ESV there in 1 Timothy 1.10 actually says that the law is for enslavers. Enslavers, they just are making sure to draw out uh, the reality that the condemnation here is for those who would steal a people in order to put them under the bondage of slavery. Now, not only does Paul condemn that sort of enslavement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, but if you have a reference Bible, which I love having a reference Bible, um, you'll notice that there's most likely a reference to Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, where the, under the, uh, even under the Mosaic, under the Old Covenant law, there God condemns the same act because Exodus 21, verse 16 says, He who kidnaps a man... Whether he sells him or he is found in his possession shall surely be put to death. So I think that's significant to note that the Bible gives the death penalty for that form of slavery to kidnap a person in order to enslave them. So the Bible makes these these distinctions. Um, But I thought I'd point out a couple of more distinctions because there are, even in the Word of God, a couple of legitimate reasons that God's people um, not only had slaves, but would become slaves themselves. Um, Notice um, in Leviticus chapter 25 where I can just read these to you if you want to write them down. I think they're helpful. I think in light 
um, of challenges to the faith, challenges to the Word of God. It's, it's helpful to work through the reality of slavery in the Bible. But here, in Leviticus, it speaks to the reality of what has been co- become known as indentured servitude. Indentured servitude, where a people is actually able to sell themselves into slavery for the purpose of, of paying off their debts. And as we're going to notice in Leviticus, if you do this as an Israelite, if you happen to be an Israelite and you find yourself in the situation, if you find yourself, unfortunately, in a debt that you can't pay, and you sell yourself into slavery, as an Israelite, you're not even to be designated as a slave, but more as, as a hired hand. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 through 40 says, If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he himself has to sell himself to you, you shall not subject him to a, uh, subject him to a slave service, but he shall, be, he shall be with you as a hired man, as if, as if he was a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. So indentured servitude is one way in which you could find yourself as a slave. You could be in such a debt that you had to enslave yourself to pay off your debts. Now, there's another reason that people could become enslaved under the Old Covenant in particular, and this was specifically for Gentiles. Under the Old Covenant, um, God at times offered a what you could consider and what is a merciful option to the enemies of God's people, uh, to Israel. And this merciful option that God would offer up to uh, the enemies of Israel is that they could do one of two things. Um, They could either die under God's judgment that was being poured out through his people Israel, or they could become Israel's slaves. And if you just want to, if you want to see this one, I think this is significant. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 and 11, uh, speak to the reality of how God had given his people this land. And when they were to come into the land and when they were to fight the enemies of God, uh, this was a merciful option that God gave to his people or offered to the enemies of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10 says, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. See, so that there is given to us as an example of another way in which people could become enslaved under the very commandment of God and the only person these days who I think would push back on on the Deuteronomy example of of God's enslaving of a people the only person that would have a problem with this kind of slavery would be the person who who doesn't actually believe that the pagan nations surrounding Israel deserve to be entirely wiped out by God's judgment because of their sins and that slavery slavery was actually a merciful grace that they didn't deserve. Um, that, that would be the only reason I think that you could have a problem with God's enslaving of people under that condition um, to instead of die fighting against God and his people Israel, uh, they would then, yes, become enslaved, but now they would be amongst the people of God. Now they would be exposed to God's word, exposed to God's law and all of the benefits that come with that, namely, the salvation of their souls. So I call it a merciful option. But all of these are just um, some of the variation amongst the Israelites that actually led to a large percentage of the people being classified as slaves. And the same realities hold true historically for the Gentile nations as as they took prisoners of war, they would enslave uh, many of those people. It's said that by the first century, um, in our context, where Paul is writing, in the city of Rome, for instance, that in the first century, that 30 to 40 percent of the population was made up of slaves, of the slave class. Now, to me, that was a way bigger number than what I had imagined 
in my mind. And because of just because of the time of wars and overtime, certainly you can understand how the legitimate versus the illegitimate slavery over time had just become so intermingled and so gray that many slaves could probably not even account for the reasons of why their entire family, as far back as they had known, had become slaves. At some point, slavery had just grown to such an extent that in one sense it had become an accepted norm, um, is how MacArthur uh, phrases it in his commentary on the situation. It, in some sense, had just been going on for so long it was an accepted norm. But as terrible, and it is terrible, um, I don't wish to be a slave, I don't wish anyone else to be a slave, as terrible as it was and still is to be a slave, and it's important to remember and to note that slavery still exists in many forms around the world, as terrible as it is to be a slave, there is something of greater concern to the Apostle Paul than fighting slavery. And this is the clarity and the preservation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why didn't the Apostle Paul write this letter to stir up the church to begin a a complete upheaval and eradication of the institution of slavery? Well, it's as I said, the Apostle Paul actually does in 1 Timothy, for example, condemn unrighteous forms of slavery. But Paul is more concerned about keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the unmitigated spread of the gospel. Just as Paul's um, unrighteous imprisonment in Rome did not stop him from the spreading of the gospel, so neither does being a slave necessarily stop the spread of the gospel. And this is what's most important. Paul doesn't ignore the reality of slavery and Another example, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul there says, if you're a slave and you can obtain your freedom, then do it. Uh, Paul says the option's there, but that is not the focus of Paul's message. The focus is on Christ and his cross work, and, and this is what it all comes down to, is that Christ did not die to simply free us from unrighteous earthly masters. Christ died to set us free from our slavery to sin. And we dare not confuse the distinctions between those two things. Uh, Dare you lose the gospel, which many have um, even related to this issue. So in our text here, I trust that if Onesimus' enslavement by Philemon was of such a kind that it warranted Paul's rebuke, I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul would have addressed the issue. The Apostle Paul, living in the first century, knowing not only Philemon but Onesimus, was certainly more aware of the circumstances surrounding Philemon and Onesimus' relationship. He's more aware than we could ever be of that relationship, and I'm, I'm certainly fine with entrusting myself to Paul's judgment on this issue, and I, I pray that you would be Um, entrusting yourself to Paul's judgment as far as slavery goes as well and not stumbled by the language of slavery in our text here. Um, But there is much to study on that. Um, Just uh, by way of noting, I hope it's still okay to reference James White, even though um, (laughs) something obviously happened with him today. But um, he's actually planning on in his Sunday school, and he's been saying this forever, and I've been looking forward to it. He's actually going to Uh, dedicate in his Sunday school class a whole teaching. He's been going through the Mosaic Law, the Levitical Law, in his Sunday school classes at his church. He's going to dedicate a whole time of studying the reality and the distinctions of slavery under the Old Covenant. And I'll let you guys know when when he begins that because I'm very interested, very neglected study, it seems. Even in searching it out for this text, very surface-level interactions with the whole topic, it seems to me. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that James White is going to do that work. I, I think we'll benefit from it. But back in our text here, um, I'm going to pick up now in verse 17 because this is where the Apostle Paul continues his plea for Onesimus. In verse 17 he says, If then, uh, Philemon, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. The Apostle Paul is a good brother. The Apostle Paul is a good brother. He is, in, in essence, making it impossible for Philemon not to be willing to forgive. He says, whatever, whatever Onesimus stole from you, charge it to my account. I will pay it for him. The Apostle Paul certainly would have counted it a blessing to imitate his Savior, to imitate his mediator by having the opportunity to play the mediator here between Onesimus and Philemon. Now, the Lord Jesus is able to play that role as mediator because he has an infinite righteousness of riches to give to his people that he mediates for. But the question the commentators ask is, how is it that the Apostle Paul could even play this role as mediator and offer up uh, to pay back financially whatever it is that Onesimus has taken, and it could have been uh, significant. So the question that they, that they seek to answer is, how did the Apostle Paul, who's in chains, as the text says, how does he have money? How can he even make this offer? How does the Apostle Paul, who's in chains, have money? Well, the Apostle Paul has money the same way that the ministers of our churches have money, and that is from the faithful giving of the members of the church. The Apostle Paul was not able to work in this particular imprisonment, and therefore the church must have supported him. Paul himself says, as he writes to, 1 Timothy, writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The apostle Paul was willing to say of himself, speaking of the other apostles, that he labeled more than them all for the churches. The apostle Paul was able to say, and the apostle Paul rightfully had earned his keep from the churches and I just wanted to remind us of the reality that as members of Heritage Grace, we have the opportunity of supporting the proclamation of God's Word through, Emilio's, through Pastor Emilio's preaching and teaching. And I call it a privilege, a privilege that we should count as a great blessing indeed that we get to partake in this work because there are many brothers, there are many sisters that are giving support to much less sound to much less God-glorifying Bible teaching. And so we're blessed to get to support the gospel preaching that, that we are able uh, to support here at Heritage Grace. And so I just say that by way of reminder to um, implement that as part of your worship of God in supporting the, the uh, continuation of the gospel through the preaching of this church. Uh, verse 20 now, in a close, as Paul's closing with his appeal here, in verse 20, again, he tells Philemon, he says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Have it in confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will even do more than what I say. So here we see that the Apostle Paul writes this letter with assurance that Philemon is actually going to do the right thing, that he's going to receive his newly won brother warmly. But even in all of this confidence that Paul has in Philemon, he still writes the letter nonetheless, but he doesn't do that out of a heart of being a heavy-handed apostle, a heavy-handed shepherd. The apostle Paul just wants to ensure that this act of obedience is actually being carried out. Um, whether Philemon is actually officially an elder in the church or not, we don't know, but certainly he had a, a prominent role, a prominent position in this church, as we, we noted from the early ver verses of this letter, that the church is being held in Philemon's house. 
And because of all this, uh, Paul wants to ensure that Philemon remains above reproach, both for his good and for the good of Onesimus, but ultimately, I think, and this is why the Apostle Paul addressed the brethren in the church, ultimately, I think the Apostle Paul wants to ensure that the bride of Christ in this church in Colossae would, be continue, would continue to be a spotless bride for her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I like the fact that we see here that it is the, the obedience of the saints that refreshes Paul's heart. It's the obedience of the saints that refreshes Paul's heart. Paul, being sure that Philemon will refresh his heart in this act of forgiving, writes simply to ensure that it happens. Now, let's close as the Apostle Paul closes here. Um, he, he wraps up his letter with what we could call just a few closing details and greetings. Um, he closes beginning in verse 22. Paul says, At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Now, I love this verse because I love to be reminded of the Apostle Paul's view of prayer. I need to be reminded of the effectual nature of prayer. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul sees prayer. Paul sees Philemon's prayer as an effectual means through which God causes things to happen in this world. Paul sees here in particular Philemon's prayers as being the means through which Paul himself will be released from his imprisonment and as a 60-year-old man will actually be able to make the 1,200-mile journey from Rome to Colossae for what, as you could imagine, would assuredly be a sweet time of fellowship between Paul and Onesimus and Philemon, a time that they could live out Psalm 133, verse 1, that says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And so the Apostle Paul has his eye towards that day, and he asks Philemon to pray towards that end, that the brethren would forgive, that they would all dwell in unity. Verse 23, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's interesting to note that as Paul mentions Mark and Luke here, actually being present with the Apostle Paul, the fact that these two men are here with Paul, in their presence we now have two-thirds of the canon of New Testament authorship being accounted for. Now, I don't know why I even point that out. I just love to, I love to see the organic nature of the, the authors of the Word of God in the Scriptures, uh, the interaction of the biblical authors, their affirmation of each other's ministry um, in the gospel work and in their, their place as um, writing the very words of God. But notice that even in the midst of such godly men, such, even in the midst of such men that were being used in such mighty ways as writing the very scriptures for God's people, uh, there's one here, Demas, in their midst who obviously did not combine his hearing of the word of God with faith. And we know that because 2 Timothy 4.10 tells us that due to Demas's love with this present world, that he actually deserted the Apostle Paul. So much truth surrounded this man, but so little lasting fruit. And so I just thought that we should fear above all things of, of being a Demas, of being just merely a hearer of the word and not also a doer of the word. And with Philemon and with this letter, we must take heart the inspired words of Paul to forgive because they're the same words, just as Paul knows, the same words that the Lord Jesus leaves with us in Matthew 6.15 where there he says, if you do not forgive others, 
your Father in heaven will not forgive your transgressions. Brothers and sisters, Christianity, Christianity, God's religion, is a religion of forgiveness from start to finish. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus also has forgiven you. It all starts with God's forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus, and the forgiveness is to continue in our Christ-like forgiveness of the brethren. Another application of, of this letter is this, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul believes the words that he wrote in 1 Corinthians when he says that when one part of the body suffers, that all of the body suffers. And if there was even the possibility that Paul thought that Philemon was not going to receive Onesimus and not forgive him, Paul knew that he had to intervene that he had to ensure that there was no root of bitterness being established in Philemon's heart. And Paul was willing, as we must be willing, to work for the peace of the church. We all, in a sense, need to be like young Timothy. As you remember how the Apostle Paul describes Timothy, Paul said that Timothy was not like all the others who were only concerned for their own interests, But Timothy was of a kindred spirit with the Apostle Paul, caring for the church of God even above himself. In all of this, in the matter of forgiveness, Timothy experienced the the same trials in his ministry. None of us are exempt. I have this verse underlined in my Bible where Paul has to tell Timothy, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Patient when wronged, which obviously includes forgiving. We, brothers and sisters, who have been forgiven much, must be willing to forgive much and must be willing to help the brethren do the same. Philemon was blessed in more ways than he knew. Through his trial, he was shown that he had a faithful brother, Paul, who was willing to help him to glorify his Savior by ensuring that he forgive. Philemon was blessed to have been given a new brother in the Lord, namely Onesimus, who was willing to repent, who was willing to humble himself and seek for his forgiveness. What started off as a trial, a trial that we might say was worth complaining about, ended up being one of the greatest blessings of Philemon's life. It's a blessing that has forever been inscripturated in the Word of God for our benefit. Let's pray and thank God for that. Well, Father, all of your Word, all of your Word is inspired, is breathed out by you, and is profitable for us in so many ways. God, in our prayer is that you would Take your word, Lord, and, and, and bring it into our hearts that it may come out in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this example of, of Philemon's life, this example of how Philemon was called to forgive, the, the example of how Onesimus was called to repent and to humble himself, the example of how the Apostle Paul himself was so willing to humble himself, to take the time to write to a brother, to help him to forgive. Lord, you know. You know that we are prideful, Lord. You know that we don't like to forgive. We don't like to humble ourselves and repent and ask for forgiveness. Lord, you know this, and because you know this, you have inscripturated your commands for us. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've set forth practical examples in your word of how this is good for us and how this brings about the unity of your church which brings about your glory lord by your spirit stir us up to to humble ourselves to diminish ourselves that you would be glorified 
Lord, we only have breath so that we can glorify you, Lord. Please take our lives from us, Lord, and when we try to hold on to them, Lord, take our lives from us for your glory, for our good, that you would be glorified with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.